Well, today we begin that all-familiar story of the woman at the well. This is one of the most impactful narratives that we will discover together in the book of John. The dialogue between Jesus and this very bright Samaritan woman bears a complexity like a uh, like kind of a multifaceted diamond. And yet the flow of thought here is so easy to follow, it's hard to miss the important insight that John wants us to pick up on and discover in this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. My intention is to take this absolute gem of a passage over the next few weeks and kind of turn it over in our hands very slowly and very carefully so that we can see it for all of its glory, or at least most. We don't have time for everything here, but, but to get a, as full an impact of what's going on here as possible. But this morning, in the interest of time, since this is Lord's Supper Sunday, I, I really want to make an, one observation about Jesus' strategy in his ministry to this woman, and I trust it will help us know how to awaken spiritual thirst for Christ in our own hearts when it seems we have momentarily lost it, or in some cases, perhaps, never had it. Now, on its face, this passage is obviously intended to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ that uh, John tells us, as we've looked at this over and over again in John chapter 21, that um, the whole purpose of the book is so that we would come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. His goal is that everyone, even this Samaritan woman, this serial sinner of a Samaritan woman, would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and find life in his name. Life here represented by living water. But what I want us to consider this morning is just one little part of the dialogue that we find all the way down at the bottom, um, beginning with verse 13. Next week we'll come back and I'll set up context and we'll do all of that fun stuff. But now, in light of the Lord's table, let's just jump in with verse 13. Watch this. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now let's think about this for a minute. If there ever was a master evangelist, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, he had a bit of an advantage. Um, He was God, and he is the embodiment of the gospel. So if there was anyone who knew how to use it, it was Jesus he knew how to share the gospel. He, he really, really, that's what this story is about. It's about Jesus sharing the gospel with this woman and this woman's response to it and the effects that it has in her community. But when you get to this part of the, quote, presentation of the gospel, you kind of, you kind of have to sit back and, and ask yourself some questions. Um, What exactly is Jesus doing here? Why does, he, why does he approach her the way that he does? We would look at this passage right here at this point, and we would say, Jesus. I mean, if we're critiquing his evangelistic skill, we'd say, okay, now, Jesus, you got her. 
She's eaten out of your hand. It's time to close the deal. It's time to get her to pray the prayer and say the magic words. And he doesn't do it. Here's what the woman says to to him. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I mean, it sounds to me like she's just about ready. What it is you need to do with her next, now's the time. I mean, if this was church, you'd want her to walk an aisle. You'd be, you'd be getting the sticker to put in the back of her Bible. You'd be getting that already. If Jesus were such a great evangelist, surely he, was, he would start moving to close the deal. And he would explain to her that all she needs to do is pray the sinner's prayer and really, really mean it from her heart. And if she did really, really mean it from her heart, then she could know for sure with all certainty and never, ever doubt that she is now a child of God. But that's absolutely not what he does. And not even close. I mean, the organist is just about to play just as I am right here. Everything is, is perfect. She's loving what she's hearing. And then we read this, verse 16. And he says to her, go and call your husband and come here. What? And she says, verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus says, I mean, you, you might expect Jesus to say, oh, oh I, that was the wrong question. Let's go back to the living water. No, no. He pushes even harder. Jesus said, you are correct. You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have, not your husband. This you have said truly. If you're critiquing Jesus' evangelism right now, you're going to be saying, Jesus, what in the world were you thinking? What were you thinking? What was that? I mean, what kind of approach to evangelism is this? You were so close to being able to draw the net on this woman. Why in the world did you bring up that thing about her husband? Why in the world would you you poke at her wound? And then when she didn't tell you the whole truth, you just used your sovereign powers of understanding everything that's in her heart, and you just broke it open and laid it bare. You're not only guilty of fornication, you're guilty of serial sexual sin, and the man you're living with now is not even your husband. Now what is she going to do? You had your opportunity and you blew it. I love it. I put it in these crass terms this morning to highlight the difference, I think, between most modern evangelistic techniques as compared with the approach of our Lord. Because you see, Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't working from some canned, memorized, um, evangelistic presentation. Now, it's not to say that I'm against having memorized strategies for sharing the gospel. You should. I mean, as I said before, Jesus had quite an advantage over you. He's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, he is almighty. And so, 
He didn't need something, can't. He could see into the person's heart. And I understand that you can't. But it's so important that we see this. Jesus wasn't working from some canned memorized evangelism strategy. Rather, he addressed each person according to their need. What was going on in their heart? And you know what? You don't need x-ray vision. All you need to do is ask some questions. Jesus cut past the question part. When he spoke with Nicodemus, you remember? He had a different strategy. He identified what Nicodemus needed. And the reality was, Nicodemus was enslaved to a theology of self-righteousness. And so the focus of Jesus' message was what? The focus of Jesus' message to Nicodemus was, you must be born again. And that rocked his world. He never heard anything like that before. And then his whole explanation about how the Spirit causes someone to be regenerated. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You can't see it, you can't control it, but you see its effects. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That was his approach, his evangelistic approach to Nicodemus. Here, however, when he's speaking to a woman who is apparently enslaved to an endless quest for satisfaction in male companionship, the focus of his message is this. Only the living water can truly and permanently satisfy your soul. You'll never find satisfaction in men. Never. And here's why. They're all sinners. They will all let you down. None of them make a good God. And that's what you really need. In both cases, he was offering the gospel to sinners. But I'm especially intrigued with how he does it here. Think about this. What was Jesus offering this woman? He calls it living water. And what was the appeal of this living water as he presented it? The appeal was this. If you you drink this living water, you will never thirst again because it will become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a spring of water welling up unto eternal life. In other words, you will have the presence of God. You will have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. But here's the problem. The woman at this point is really not thinking about receiving eternal life. And neither is the person that you speak to when you offer that God has a wonderful plan for their life. They're not thinking about what they really need. They're thinking just about what you've said. But Jesus means so much more. The woman is only thinking about liquid water because she doesn't want to have to keep making the long journey to the well every day. I don't know if you've been to any third world countries. I have. And one of the most difficult things that they have, in Uganda is one of them, at least until recently, uh, at, at uh, SOS Ministries there, those people spend an enormous, the women and the children spend an enormous amount of time doing one thing. You know what it is? Walking to the well, getting the water, bringing it home. Walking to the well, getting the water, bringing it home. If you could, if you could provide water for them in their house, I mean, that would be incredible. And Jesus is saying, I got something better than that. I got, I got living water that can permanently be flowing through your soul. The problem was, the woman wasn't thinking right. 
And so Jesus' challenge was to do something that would cause her to thirst for the water that he was offering, namely the gospel. You understand the flow here? This woman is hearing me. She's intrigued by what I'm saying. She wants what it sounds like I'm offering, but she really doesn't get it. I need her to thirst for what the gospel offers, namely forgiveness of what? Sin. And so what does he do? He immediately goes after her sin. She thinks she's going to get away to get fresh water on a regular basis without any hard work, and that's not what he's after at all. And so he says to her, the very thing, the very, the very question that she needs to help her thirst for the living water. Remember last week, we talked about the reality that, that the problem with every sinner is that we don't have any spiritual taste buds. We read the passage in the Psalms that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. An unregenerate person, they, they taste the word of God. They, they taste what the Lord offers through the various graces that he gives. And it's nothing to them. It's bitter to them. They don't like it. It's like, remember, we talked about uh, cookie butter, that uh, Trader Joe's cookie butter last week. And I said, look, if I put that on your tongue and you can't taste it and enjoy that, then something's wrong with your tongue. And uh, by the way, just as an aside, I heard there were like two or three families bumped into each other down at Trader Joe's after the message, <laughs> looking for cookie butter. You missed the point of the message completely. <laughs> if I put that on your tongue and you don't get it, something is wrong with your tongue. If, if John lays Jesus in front of you in all of his glory, his majesty, and all of his worth, and you're not impressed... Something is wrong with your heart. And Jesus is after the appropriate change. What needs to change in her heart? What is she not getting? And the answer, she doesn't, she doesn't understand the sin in her heart and the fact that God wants to forgive it permanently. That God wants to wash her clean permanently and, and provide for her a well of living water, a spring of moving, refreshing, satisfying water that will keep her heart clean every moment of every day for eternity. How do you do that? You go after their sin gently, carefully, respectfully, yes. Condemningly, condemningly, no. And look how Jesus does it. The woman says, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all this way here to draw. And he says to her, Go call your husband. Talk about a major left turn. What does my husband have to do with this? Your husband has to do everything. It has everything to do with this. Because that's where your idol is. That's what's keeping you from getting the living water. Ask yourself, why does Jesus go after her relationship with these men? And the answer is this. That's how he gives living water. What we get from God through the gospel is not God has a wonderful plan for your life. He may not. It may be harder than you ever thought it would be after you come to Christ. 
It's not God is going to make your business better or God is going to rescue your children or make sure they're all saved or, or any of that. The gospel is this. All of your sin can be forgiven in Christ. That's what the gospel is. And until she is ready to come to him to have her heart washed, then she'll never have this living water. And so Jesus goes right after it. You know, the end of the story, not only was this woman's life transformed by this encounter, but her entire village, Sychar, apparently experienced the kind of revival that's seldom seen in church history. Watch this, verse 39, just, just a little taste of it here. We'll come back to it in a few weeks. From that city, here's the effect. This is John 4. From that city, many of the Samaritans. You remember John's, remember John's purpose for his book? That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Many, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this is the one. Indeed, he is the Savior of the world. What did he do? He did the most loving thing he could do. He confronted her at her sin and offered her the eternal solution, the eternal remedy. Here's the point that I want to drive home this morning, beloved. It is simply this. Nothing has the power to awaken true spiritual thirst for Christ like deep conviction over your own sin. Let me say that again. Nothing has the power to awaken true spiritual thirst for Christ like deep conviction over your own sin. I would submit to you that the reason the American church is so spiritually weak in our time is not because we haven't been able to figure out how to make people feel good about themselves, but because we've trained people to feel so good about themselves that they have little use for Christ. To the American church, Jesus is less like the Lamb of God who came to bear our sin and more like a therapeutic life coach come to help us experience all the blessing and comfort that we deserve. And because of that, we never come to Christ on his terms. And we wonder, even as believers, why it is that our fellowship with Christ is so stunted, stinted, whatever that word is. Why do we have, why is there such difficulty in fellowship with Christ? We hear of others who seem like they're, they're walking with Christ, they're, they're living with Christ, and you know that. You know what that's like because you experienced it the day you first believed, and now you think, where is it? I haven't had that in a long time. And you know what the answer is? Sin. And it's not that, it's not that you don't know that you have it, The problem is you don't know what the connection is between your sin and fellowship with Christ. 
Beloved, viewing Jesus like some kind of therapeutic life coach is no different than this woman who was hoping that Jesus would provide some kind of plumbing so that she would get water. That's not why he came. He came to give her and us something infinitely more valuable, namely a reconciled and eternally satisfying relationship with Almighty God. That's why he came. That we might be reconciled to God. Not once. But once with permanent and lasting relationship and fellowship that comes from it. This morning, Jason was talking about, he mentioned briefly in Sunday school, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I think it's such a perfect picture of what we're talking about here. We're talking about reconciliation, justification, yes. But we're talking about daily sanctification, daily purification, daily not washing the whole body. Jesus says you don't need your whole body washed once you believe the word, once you've come under the word, once you know Christ. Now your problem is your feet get dirty. And that's important. It's important that you keep yourself pure and holy in his sight. But that takes diligence. It takes discipline. We have such a oops view of sin. We do something wrong and we go, oops, and other people snicker. And we don't realize that what we did was we just took a chip away from our fellowship with Christ. And now it's not what it was. And then you do it again. Now it's not what it was. And you do it again. Now it's, and you're not dealing with the sin. And eventually it'll lead you into depression. Eventually it'll lead you down a path where you think, Man, you start hearing yourself say, man, I've just, I've just really been going through a dry spell. Okay, what are you going to do about that? And you might be saying, I don't know what to do about it. Well, good. Because this is the answer. What you need to do about it is take confession of sin seriously. You know, when I'm teaching people to pray, we really emphasize this. Adoration, yes, praise God. We have songs to help us with that. And uh, we have wonderful books and choruses and all kinds of things. When we come together, we worship God. That's all wonderful. You should be doing that privately, personally. Confession, if you're following the ACTS plan, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, right, supplication, that's prayer for other people. If you're following that, that acrostic, that kind of plan for your prayer, Don't rush past confession. You need to be like David. I need to be like David every morning and say, God, search me. God, try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. We need to be like the publican in the temple who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We need to remember passages like 1 John 1, that if we confess our sin, by the way, that's that's a present active If we keep on confessing our sin, he will keep on being faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of relationship we should have. I mean, every day, making sure our feet are washed and clean, knowing that we've been cleansed permanently in Christ. And yet every day, every day I'm still tempted. Every day I still sin. And I don't want it to affect my relationship with Christ. The leading cause for lack of fellowship with Christ 
sin. Why do we so often lose our fellowship with God in Christ? Sin. Beloved, the remedy for our lost condition before God and the remedy for our lack of fellowship with God is the same, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin, all your guilt, all your shame. And I would submit to you that the woman at the well would never have found herself thirsting for living water if Jesus had not exposed her sin. You got a thirst problem? You look at the word of God and you go, I don't think so. You think about prayer? I don't want to. I want to watch a movie. I want to play a game. I want to call someone on the phone. I want to go do work. I want to make money. Prayer? I know the Lord. I I just don't feel like it. I don't have any thirst for that. You know what the remedy is? Let's get alone with God and plead with him. God, what's going on in my heart? Why can't I pray? Why can't I fellowship with you? Why am I struggling like this? Search me, oh God. And then every sin that comes to your mind, you confess. And you ask the Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Do like David did. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Or David in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, the uh, the man uh, 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 against whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. David again and again went back again and again to the Lord in confession. Lord, purify my heart. Keep my heart pure. I want to long for you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to be able to pray. I find that times of sweetest fellowship with Christ are almost always connected to a deep sense of my own unworthiness in the light of his glorious grace. You know what? I've had, I've been here for, I've been serving here for 19 years and I can't tell you how many times people have come and they've heard me or previous to me, Pastor Jim, preach, and they've come and said, they've rebuked us and said, look, quit telling your people they're sinners. We are children of God. And I think, (laughs) where do I I even begin? If you're not still dealing with your sin, I'm not talking about morbid introspection here. I'm talking about having the fear of the Lord, an appropriate fear of the Lord that exposes your sin so that it will drive you to the cross, drive you to Christ on his terms. You want to fellowship with him? Come to him on his terms, and you'll know the joy of it. You'll know the fellowship. To taste the grace, this kind of grace, that comes when we bring ourselves before the throne and own who we are and delight in all that he is for us. To taste that grace is like drinking deeply of living water. And oh, how satisfying it is to my soul. One of my favorite extra-biblical heroes, and I have a number, and I think you should too. Somebody ought to be able to sit down with you and say, who are your spiritual heroes? And you ought to say, are you kidding? Where do we start? Jim Elliott, William Carey, 
Adniram Judson, David Brainerd, Amy Carmichael. Um, you ought to have heroes, people that you look to and say, Lord, I know they didn't get it all right, but I want to live like that. I want to learn from them. One of those men in my life is a man by the name of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a pastor in England. I believe in Oxford he was the pastor. He didn't think he would ever pastor there. He was an incredible scholar. But he got appointed to be the pastor there. Here's the problem. The congregation, most of the congregation didn't want him. They liked the associate. They liked Brent better than Dan. And so they wanted to come and hear the other guy preach. And the other guy preached early in the morning, and Charles Simeon preached later in the morning, like first service, second service. But here's what would happen. Uh, if you can imagine, like, a, a, like a, one of the old churches in New England, um, you walk into some of those old churches, and the pews, the, the structure of the pews are very high. The seats are about the same as where you're sitting, but the structure around it is very high, and there's a door at the aisle. And there's, there's no side aisles. They butt up against the wall. So there's doors on the, on the aisle. And you would come to church with your family. And you, basically, the church is sustained by you paying for your family pew. And so you get a family pew that you pay for every week or every month, however the deal is. And you come in with a key, get a key, and you go to your family pew. You unlock the door. You bring your family in. You sit down and you worship. And what happened for Charles Simeon is after the first service did that, on the way out, they locked their pews. So in the second service where Charles Simeon was preaching, nobody could sit. And so his much smaller congregation had to stand in the aisles. And people hated him. His little flock loved him. And you can tell they loved him because for 14 years they stood in the aisles. Amazing. He was so hated that to be a follower or friend of, of Charles Simeon was to be known as a, as a Simite. It was like wearing a scarlet letter. He once, he once wrote in his journal that he could remember over the past year, he was thinking about the past year and the people who actually fellowshiped with him. He said he was able to remember one time walking across the lawns on campus where a student walked with him and talked with him for, as a friend for a period of a quarter of an hour. That was the only time he could remember. One student, 15 minutes over the previous year, was willing to be seen with him. And this guy, he was reformed. He was one of those flaming evangelicals that that the established church hated and it bothered him and he was he had to wrestle with this all the time but you know what it just drove him to Christ it drove him to Christ he saw his trials as a reason to fly to Christ and he saw and here's here's the magic of it he saw his sin all of his sin, whenever he became aware of his own sinfulness or a sin that he had recently committed, it would, he would use it to propel him, to fuel his worship, to, to cause him to fly to the cross because there he knew there was forgiveness and there was glory. And he claims that this kind of humiliation 
connected to exaltation. Humiliation of himself, exaltation of Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. That balance was to him the ballast in his boat. You know what a ballast is? If you got a big boat, what they used to do in the old days is pile the hull, the bottom of the ship. They'd pile it full of rocks, heavy, heavy rocks. And that's what keeps the boat upright. There's a, there's a heavy weight in the bottom of it. So when the winds blow against the ship, you know, it's like a weeble wobble. It just comes back up. You blow it down, it comes back up. And, and he said the ballast in his ship was this connection, this unified uh, way of thinking of, on the one hand, his humiliation and Christ's exaltation. And here's what he said. Well, first of all, here's what John Piper says. The remarkable thing about humiliation and adoration in the heart of Charles Simeon is that they were inseparable. Simeon was un- utterly unlike most of us today who think that we should get rid at once, once and for all, of feelings of vileness and unworthiness as soon as we can. For him, adoration only grew in freshly plowed soil of humiliation for sin. And so he actually labored to know his true sinfulness and his remaining corruption as a Christian. He writes this, I have continually, I have con- I, I, I have continually had such a sense of my sinfulness and w- that would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. And at the same time, I had such a a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overturn my little bark, my, my little canoe, his life, if I had not ballast at the bottom sufficient to sink a vessel of some greater size. He knew the glory of Christ. And he knew his own sin. And his sin drove him back and back and back to the glory of Christ. He writes this. He never lost sight of this heavy ballast of his own humiliation. After 40 years of being a Christian, he wrote this. With this sweet hope hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men. But I have at the same time labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. I have never thought, listen to this. this, this will rattle some of your cages, as it did me. I have never thought that the circumstance of God having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I have always judged it better, better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified toward me because of Christ. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own sinfulness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel whilst putting his hand upon the head of the scapegoat. The disease did not keep him from applying the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this, I seek to be not only humbled and thankful, but humbled in my thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. He would often just open the word, 
and read. And he would see, no matter where he went, he would see two things. The glory of Christ and his own sinfulness. And the more he saw his sinfulness, the more glorious Christ's glory became. One of his dear friends said he accidentally walked in on Simeon when he was in prayer and he realized that Simeon was so overcome by the majesty of Christ, he sat weeping and the only word that could come out of his mouth was glory, glory. Beloved, you don't get that with our shallow Christianity, our me-centeredness our therapeutic butler-in-the-sky view of God. You'll never know what it is like to fellowship with Christ until we fellowship with him as he is prescribed. With the attitude of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. All of my heroes from church history understood this. All of them. David Brainerd especially. The way upward is to descend downward. The way to see the highest glories of Christ is to see them from the lowliest seat of the undeserving sinner. The more I see his glory, the more I know my sin. And the more I know my sin, the more clearly I see his glory and feel the awesome privilege that it is to be favored with his fellowship, love, and care. And so, beloved, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, If you are sensing that your fellowship with Christ is lacking, your thirst for him is weak or non-existent, let me encourage you to do something about it. Stop settling for lifeless Christianity. Fly to Christ. Fly to the cross. Ask him to search your heart and to reveal all of your sin. Hold nothing back from him. And let him pour into you the life-giving, soul-satisfying, living water of the gospel, that by it you may once again know the forgiveness of sins and reconciled fellowship with your God. And so I say again, nothing has the power to awaken true spiritual thirst for Christ like deep conviction over your own sin. Let's ponder this as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Oh, Father, my goal in this is not somehow that this would result in depression, but rather that it would result in joy. And just as it is the goal of, of every doctor to apply the surgery or the medicine, not to cause harm, but to bring the remedy And so, Father, I pray that we would take these things seriously and that we would pursue our happiness through holiness and that we would become more like Jesus Christ because we have met him at the foot of the cross and meet him there every day. We give you praise and thanksgiving for it all in Jesus' name.